0: morning everyone one guy thinks it's a good morning two we got two good morning everyone God bless you welcome uh, to South Coast Community Church and uh, we want to thank uh, we had uh, we have a good problem which is that there are too many folks um, signed up to come and so what that means is we've had to um, have a few folks that have been here pretty regularly. Uh, We had to ask them to stay home, and so we appreciate that. Thank you for those watching from home. But the leadership team's going to meet. We're going to try to navigate through uh, and figure out whether it's a second service or how we can do that. Again, it's a great problem to have. Uh, People want to come out and fellowship together, um, and we are looking on our end to see what we can do. We already have um, enough regular people, RSVP'd. That max out this space, and so uh, I'd like to not have to, you know, ask folks to stay home. Um, but we need to work out the logistics of a second service uh, and see if that'll work. So again, I appreciate everybody's um, being, uh, you know, uh, adjustable with that. And as we, you know, as the guidelines change, as, as everything, uh, you know, is kind of a moving target, we'll obviously keep you in the loop. But thank you for your patience and cooperation. Um, well, with that, let me just pray. Um, Father, we thank you. Lord, we're grateful that despite uh, what's going on around us, that we can have your peace within us. Father, we're grateful that we're here this morning. We're grateful that we don't have to worry about what happened yesterday. We don't have to think too much about what's going to happen tomorrow. But we can be here with you in your presence. We can be still and know that you are God. And so, Father, we ask that you help center us on Christ this morning. Holy Spirit, remove the distractions, remove the, the discomfort, the heat, all the things that, that can just be used to, to take us, to take our focus off of you, God. And so we pray that you have your way in this service in each of our hearts, God, that we leave here a little different than we came in. We're, we're believing and trusting in you, Lord. Meet your people. Minister to your people. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is, Let This Be Your Attitude. Let this be your attitude. You know, we can see that in the Bible there are some great sermons. We see Stephen preached a great sermon before his death. Paul stood and addressed the crowds and preached great sermons. And Peter preached one and 3,000 were saved. But, of course, Jesus tops them all. In his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth, Gandhi said this. He said, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus is the greatest thing ever to be written. When Jesus sat down on the mountain, the, the multitudes were there. But this message was for disciples. This message was for followers. Because, you see, often the crowds turned away when they found out what following Jesus meant. And still today, there are those who call themselves followers, but are still only following themselves. So Jesus was very clear that being his follower means more than a superficial commitment. It means a dedicated, committed faith. We just finished a series where we talked about excuses that we make for not putting God first. And so I'd like us to take uh, an honest spiritual inventory. How are we doing spiritually? You know, I was away this, this week, and, uh, and I, was, I was blessed to spend some time in Maine. And, and one of the things we did was we went on a hike. And just the word hike makes me tired. And so, like walk is one thing, but hike was aggressive. I got to admit, and, you know, it was my brother-in-law, and we had the four little kids, and they all wanted to do it, and so, you know, the little kids, Uncle Dougie, you think you can make it? And I said, well, we're going to see. And so we went on a hike, three and a half miles. My brother-in-law told me it was a mile and a half, and then he said, that must have been the wrong side, which I'm still, I think it was manipulation, but I'll, anyway, all that to say, we, we started on this hike, and, you know, it. It's gorgeous. I mean, you know, the, the whole time the water's beautiful and, the you know, there's rocks and mountains. And everywhere you look, it's out of a postcard. And I found myself going, all right, how long till we get to the end? And then I had to check myself and say, wait a minute, that's not the, the point. The point isn't to just get to the end. The point isn't, the goal isn't just, you know, to complete it. The goal is to enjoy and embrace in the midst of it. Because once it's over and on the ride home we said to the kids, hey, what was your favorite part of the whole trip? And we did all kind of stuff. Went to Old Orchard Beach, everything, and they said, the hike. And so, you know, fortunately, the Lord sort of reminded me that sometimes we rush through the process. Sometimes it's good to have goals, but sometimes we can't wait to to get to the destination that we neglect the moment. That we neglect our spiritual reality, that we neglect the journey being part of the prize. And so I want to take this time, I want to encourage each of us. With all the uncertainty in the world, whether it's a pandemic, racism, politics, whatever it is, pick what it is, there's a collective anxiety. But in the midst of that anxiety, we are still invited into the presence of Jesus. He is still asking us for greater intimacy with Him. And so my prayer is that we spend more time in His presence without distractions, that we're not so hung up on the little goals we set, which can be good, that we, we miss the everyday blessings, that we stop and look around, that we focus more upon Jesus' words, upon fasting and upon prayer. I want us to see our relationship with Jesus as our primary relationship. We mentioned that last week. Everything, particularly Every relationship should be an overflow of how we relate to Jesus. And so the word beatitude, it means supremely blessed. And we know all people desire to be blessed. If you said to anyone, hey, do you want to be blessed? Of course they'd say yes. But earthly man seeks his blessings in the things of the earth. And position and money and fame and power and sensual pleasure. But the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to God's way of being blessed. Psalm 1 and the worship team can come up. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way, I'm sorry, who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And this is sort of a side note because this is not my, my main text. But if you notice in that, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the, with the wicked. There's, you know, there's an active participation. You're, you're moving or stand in the way of sinners. Now you've stopped moving or ultimately sit in the company of mockers. Now the momentum has gone altogether. Because that's what evil does. That's what sin does. But instead, verse 2, blessed is his, he whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a stream but planted by, I'm sorry a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers my prayer is that each of us would seek would desire to be those kinds of people amen so why don't we stand as we transition to worship now it's said as Jesus begins his greatest teaching the sermon on the mount that the Beatitudes are an invitation to honest, spiritual self-evaluation. So I want to take a moment now as I pray for the sermon and ask the Lord to speak to each of us, to show us where we need prayer, where we need to focus our walks. So Lord, we take this moment now, and we invite you, Lord, to search our hearts. We invite you into those places that We keep you away from those places that we haven't been ready to give up, that we've wrestled to maintain control over. And Lord, we ask that you take from us the things that we shouldn't have and replace them with things of you. Father, we don't want this to be habit or routine, tradition. Father, we want this to be entering into your presence, to be changed by your word and your spirit. Lord, we gather here So you could change our hearts. The only hope this world has is you. And so Father, have your way in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We were having, uh, we haven't had any technical difficulties all through this whole thing. And it looks like this morning we, we have and I didn't have time to fix it. So I apologize if you're watching from home in uh, the video and audio are choppy. I, I don't really know why, um, but um, we'll look at that next time. If anybody's a tech person, we need people on our tech team. So Dylan, I know you're going to sign up right away, right? So that's good. <laughs> you got to pick on people, right? So the beatitudes in the Beatitudes, Jesus provides a way of life that essentially promises peace in the midst of our trials and tribulations here on earth. It's easy, you know, I forgot who said it, you know, one of, maybe R- Ralph Waldo, I saying one of those guys said, in times like these, it helps to remember that there has always been times like these, right? It's easy to see, you know, the chaos in the midst of the world and think, you know, oh, politically things are crazy, or, you know, we have to remember that in, our, in, the, in, in the history of our country, they had a duel when they didn't, You know, they didn't get along. They took some steps, turned around, and shot at each other, right? So, you know, you can look at that, or you can look at, you know, the history of war and diseases and famine. and All these things are not new to human history, but they can feel like, you know, the world is closing in on us, that everything's so unique that, you know, this is unexpected to us, and so we can think it's unexpected to God, as if anything that happens is beyond His control or surprises Him. But you see, Jesus, again, promises an inner peace in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations. And in fact, the the heart values, and I love that phrase that was described in something I was reading, that the Beatitudes contain heart values that overshadow Jesus' entire sermon. In fact, they're the foundation on which the rest of his teaching is built. You know, we gather here to worship, we gather here to fellowship together. But primarily, we gather here to be changed by the Word and Spirit of God. To leave here with a, with, a, with an increasing intimacy with Jesus. Yeah, we want to increase our knowledge of the Word of God so we can know the character of God. So we can know Him more. To develop a, a deeper relationship with Him. Many have considered the Sermon on the Mount to represent some type of perfection. That was unobtainable. Some you know, lofty ideals that Jesus was laying out there. But that was not his intent on giving us the sermon or the Beatitudes. In fact, before he, he gives this famous discourse on how we're to be salt and light, this is the, this is the preface to that. These are the heart conditions. These are fo- foundational things. The Beatitudes are, in fact, quite clear and plain. And it's important that we read them with a very simple, literal understanding. I read somewhere that it says they are not difficult to understand. They are difficult to live. But the fact is they should serve as a, as a measuring stick for our hearts. By revealing the character of God that should be, again, increasingly formed in our hearts. You said it last week. We don't arrive this side of eternity but we should be increasing in our knowledge and love of God. We should be increasing in our in our walking away from the sin in our lives and in our having a heart after God's own heart. Our will aligns with his. Our heart aligns with his. What breaks his heart breaks our heart. And so we're going to look this morning at the beatitudes. We're going to read if you want to turn to Matthew 5. I want to read this and I want to encourage you, in, you know, in the coming week in your devotion time, that, you know, just read through these. Read prayerfully, slowly, not to get to the end, but to enjoy in the midst of it, right? Read through the Beatitudes. And we're going we're gonna to delve, I'm going to use that every sermon now. We're going to delve into each one of these a little bit deeper and pull out some, some deeper truths. But first I'm going to read through them. Matthew five so it says now when Jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples cam- came to him and he began to teach them now again the crowds are there and Jesus knows Jesus you know it doesn't surprise Jesus that you know he must look out and realize you know most of these people are going to walk away most of these people are not going to internalize what I'm saying most of these people are here for the wrong reasons but so it says He saw the crowds. He went up to a mountainside. He sat down. We're going to get more into this. And the disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. Because blessed are the merciful, I'm going to try to stick to about 30 minutes or so um, to the sermon, so if we go into the following weeks, that's fine, but I know it's, it's hot. Um, an early contemplation of the Beatitudes came from St. Gregory, who was a mystic who lived in Capodicea in Asia Minor, and he described the Beatitudes this way. It said, Beatitude is a, pos- a possession of all things held to be good, from which nothing is absent that a good desire may want. Say that again. It's a possession of all things held to be good, from which nothing is absent that a good desire may want. In other words, it's the fulfillment of our ultimate longing. It says, Perhaps the meaning of Beatitude may become clearer to us if it is compared with its opposite. The opposite of beatitude is misery. Misery means being afflicted unwillingly with painful suffering. Now, the word beatitude isn't found in the English Bible. It comes from the Latin word beatus, and it means to be supre- supremely blessed, supreme blessedness. We see a similar list in Luke 6, verse 20 through 23. And we see the opposite of Jesus blessed. And Matthew 5 would be the woes pronounced in Matthew 23 against the scribes and the Pharisees. So the woes will pass judgment on people who refuse to recognize and do the will of God. So when Jesus says, I'm sorry, give me one second. This is my, give me one second. I added to this and it's, it didn't update. I had a couple points I wanted to make and uh, that they weren't in my notes. I'm sorry about that. Technology's overheating this morning. I think I think we might have internet issues. That's probably the problem with the. Uh, that's probably why none of this is working. I think our internet's down. Sorry, everybody. Gary, maybe uh, go power cycle the cable modem out there. Because I don't know, is that, did somebody call and say we were down? Is that what my phone was ringing before? Yeah. Anyway. All right, well, we'll continue. will continue. sorry about that. So the woes will pass judgment on people who refuse to recognize and do the will of God. And the blessing are those who have hearts after God. Woe to those who use the name of Jesus for religious manipulation, for their own status, as we see the religious people, the Pharisees, will do. So the New Testament begins with Matthew's Gospel, and he's reporting on the popular success of Jesus' ministry, that crowds are beginning to gather wherever Jesus goes, that people are beginning to follow, and we know that a lot of them are following for the loaves and the fish. A lot of them are following for practical needs being met, for healing. They hear about Jesus' ministry, and they, mo- they want a part of that. Jesus went throughout the region proclaiming the message of the kingdom, and he authenticated his claims by healing people, and so throngs of people responded to his ministry from f- as far away as Jerusalem. And we said last week that his is an upside-down kingdom. This is going to be a great day, huh? <laughs> Lord Jesus, have your way. So the tr- traditional location of the mount is the low hills behind the region of Capernaum. There were other fishing villages on the shore. So his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And this is the first and the longest of Jesus' messages. You know, the whole Bible's inspired by God. It's, God's, it's God-breathed. It has value for teaching, all of those things. When Jesus speaks, there's a, there's a uniqueness. And certainly when Jesus is giving us his longest discourse, we ought to pay attention. Because Jesus had been announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was, it was a current. It was, it was right now and not yet. There, was a, there were components of the kingdom of heaven that were now being manifest on the earth. And Jesus had been calling for people to repent. That's what we talked about all these past few weeks. The call to repentance. The call to stop making excuses. The, the call to analyze. To take, you know, to take spiritual uh, inventory. And to consider what it is that Jesus is calling us to walk away from and what it is he's inviting us to walk into. So this has been described as sort of a manifesto of Jesus' kingdom. And he's unveiling these. These are foundations. These are characters of life in that kingdom. And so he's teaching us ethical guidelines. And they point to the righteousness that characterizes this life. Now in part, but fully in the future. And so the discourse was intended for the nation of Israel. From the, for the crowds who had been flocking to Jesus. But it was delivered immediately to the disciples. He considered the disciples the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, which is already present and beginning life in the kingdom. And Jesus considered the crowds the Israel of the future, or the Israel that is hoped for, those who will repent and follow the king. So to put it another way, Jesus is speaking to all the people of the true will of God. That the righteousness they must exhibit if they repent and enter his kingdom. But which the disciples had already begun to live out. The disciples have already begun to perform this. And Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. So the entire sermon is directed to everybody. And the theme is righteousness. Now again, we said there's nine beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Then there are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And they are you when people insult you for Jesus' sake. So they give a picture of the character of the true people of God. These things should be made manifest. They should be exhibited in our lives. Those who are part of his kingdom, of part of Jesus' kingdom here on earth, have the full blessings of the kingdom to come to look forward to. Now we're going to see there's really four themes because there's a, there's a parallel to some idea. So in verse 3 and verse 5, and you have the poor in spirit, and then you have the meek, which is a similarity there. You have the poor in spirit. This is the kingdom of heaven. The meek will inherit the earth. It's one theme. Verses 6 and 4, you see the same thing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would be filled. So, in, in the beginning, again, the first one you have poor in spirit and meek, and now you have those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verses seven and eight: Merciful will obtain mercy; pure in heart will see God. So, the merciful, the pure in heart, and verses nine and ten: Peacemakers are those who pursue, uh, who pursue and are persecuted for righteousness will be called children of God or will have the kingdom of God. So we'll start at the beginning. Blessed is, are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is 5:3. People who are in, poor in spirit, and there's, you know, there's a reason that Jesus begins with this. And this is a very theological uh, statement Jesus is making. You know, this may seem just like, you know, sort of light teaching. Like Jesus, you know, just says things and they're flowery and beautiful and like the Proverbs. But this is, is, these are deep theological truths that Jesus is presenting to us. And so he's beginning at the beginning. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means those who are humble before God that they realize that they have nothing in this life that they can contribute to receiving the kingdom of heaven. It's it's a full awareness of of our utter need for God's presence, for God's redemption. It's people who've humbled themselves and repented with deep contrition. You know, we've said before that a lot of times when we repent, we're not sorry that we sinned. We're sorry for the effects of our sin. That's not repentance, that's just feeling bad for results that make you uncomfortable. True repentance is to realize that despite what everyone around you saw, and despite how, what you got in trouble, and despite the worldly effects of your strength, sin, true repentance is understanding that you've, you've, you've disappointed your Heavenly Father. That there's a holy, perfect God, and that you, your sin is an offense to Him. And true repentance is to have your heart broken for that. And we said last week, you know, godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's not a pity party. It's not woe is me. But it's a full understanding. So all, all this depth is there. Jesus is saying, look, if we're going to begin to talk about things like salt and light, we have to start at the beginning. You have to understand you need to be poor in spirit. You need to be humble. I mean, if, it's one, if, if this one thing the Pharisees were not, it was poor in spirit. And it's almost like these things build on each other. If you don't have that, you don't have a shot. If you think that God chose you because you had something that he needed, you don't have a shot. God will take all of our gifts and abilities and he will use them for the kingdom. And he will, he will turn even our, our worst days into, into testimonies and into, into lessons that he will get the glory. So people see, boy, you know, that, that situation, that scenario, whatever happened, God was in that. But don't think that we have something to contribute to our salvation. I've heard it said before, that when we sat at the table across from God, all we contributed to our salvation was sin. That's all we had to give. And he took it because of the blood of Jesus, and he replaced it with eternal life and with abundant life now. It's understanding that we come to the King as helpless sinners. We have no arrogance. We have no self-righteousness. We have no self-sufficiency. Now again, this is, this is tough to hear. And you know, people fall on the spectrum. So some people, you know, they always feel bad about themselves still. And that's not, that's not godly. That's not an appropriate... You should, you should feel repentance for your sin, but you should recognize you were created in the image of God and the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God is, is increasingly bringing out that image so you can be an image bearer for Jesus. So this is not to make us feel, you know, in a, in a place of despair, but it's, make, it's making us take an honest self-assessment and understand that what Jesus is saying is, in his kingdom, there's no room for pride. And pride is thinking that we have something to offer when in, in reality, we only offer ourselves to him. And he does amazing things with that. We're free from our own pretensions. And listen to this, because I like this sentence. We are free from our own pretensions, and therefore we are free for God. We said last week, God just wants people that says, here I am, use me. Not people who say, hey God, you know, I mean, I got some, some gifts that I think you could use. I mean, they might make you look good. And so, you know, if you choose me, I'm gonna, I can do this for you. No. No, it's to be free from all that pretense and to say, here I am, Lord, use me. And most of the time, God uses the biggest knuckleheads, the most unlikely people, because God doesn't want people that everybody looks at and says oh look at that person how talented Or no God wants to use ex- uh, everyday people to show that he's an extraordinary God I shared with you before and it was you know it was kind of funny but I remember somebody said to me once they said you know the thing I like about you is you're so normal and I thought well I guess that's good I don't my wife probably doesn't think I'm normal but okay and they said yeah there's like nothing special about you at all and I was like Okay, this is starting to get a little bit like yeah, you just like you just so, just like everybody else, not extraordinary, and they were going on and on. I was like, I get it, I understand what you're trying to say. Thanks, right? But you know, but it ultimately was a comment because it was you know, you're this not. I mean, hopefully, there's not pretense. You're 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 honest. You're transparent. You're vulnerable. You know, we, when we have our discussions with the uh, denomination and they talk we talk about the ministry that's happening here. And we talk about you know. God changing lives, and it's, it's incredible, and it's exciting. And I think that we're, this is our context, so we're so used to this being church that we don't understand that it, it's unique what God's doing in this place. It's unique, the, the heart change, the, the vulnerability, the, the people that are, are willing to step out of comfort zones. And I think a large part of that is you have a leadership that's willing to be vulnerable, that's willing to say, here's the lesson I learned by all my mistakes this week, or, or whatever it is. To stand here and say, what does God's word say to us, not what am I saying to you? What does God's word say to us? And we're all on the same journey, and different people are at different places in that journey. But our goal as Christians is to help somebody take steps closer to God. That's it. We complicate it. doesn't matter. Don't compare them to you. Don't compare your walk to somebody else. Your goal as a believer is to come alongside and help people take a step in the right direction toward the Lord. So free from our own pretension and therefore free for God. Everyone who wishes to enter the kingdom Jesus talks about must acknowledge their spiritual poverty and understand that foundationally salvation is a gift from God. Embracing this poverty means acknowledging our own weakness and acknowledging our great need of strength and power from God to walk in righteousness. It means acknowledging our weakness and our great need of strength of power and power from God to walk in righteousness. It's significant that it becomes first because it is, in fact, the doorway to all other beatitudes. We know pride is the foundation of all kinds of wickedness. It's rooted in the refusal to embrace this poverty of spirit. Lucifer fell because he embraced strength in his own spirit and chose to challenge God. Adam and Eve fell in the garden because they chose to take on the strength of spirit to determine right and wrong rather than remaining in a place of dependence on God. Last week we said you know, that we celebrate the Declaration of Independence as Americans, but we need to celebrate a Declaration of Dependence of, on God of, for Christians. And Jesus is extending an offer to rule in his kingdom. And he's looking for those whom he can trust. And he only trusts those who are poor in spirit. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Heaven is heaven because of the presence of God himself. The kingdom of heaven to, to inherit the earth. It's in Matthew's Jewish language this is identical with the kingdom of God in the other gospels. Jewish expectation was not so much a heavenly kingdom but it was a messianic kingdom coming down to earth where God dwelt with man. You see that in Revelation. It's not that we ascend to be with God in the long run but that God descends once sin and evil are banished to once more dwell with man and walk with him as he did with Adam. In the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you look at for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and for they will inherit the earth, the kingdom, the heaven, no longer is contrasted to the earth because the inheritance of the latter means the kingdom of the first. The kingdom of heaven is not an other sidedness, but a coming of the higher into the lower, it's a restoration of what's been lost. In Mark 12, 34, it says, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared ask him more questions. It is, again, it is here in part and fully to come. We are to live and we are to manifest and we are to expand the kingdom of heaven here and now, looking forward to one day It being fully here on earth where God will dwell with men. So how do we become poor in spirit? should be that we hear the message of the kingdom and learn what kind of a kingdom and how to enter it through repentance for sin, submission to the will of God. And we said the first step is simply to confess. Some of us have done that and we need to do it again and again and again. And some of us have never done that. Maybe you're here and, and you, you know, you've heard sermons, you've grown up in the church, you you know, you know the Bible, but you've never taken that first step. You've never fully acknowledged your need for God. You know, and I've said before that the, the good thing about something like addiction, and we all have different sins. And I've said before we're all addicts because we're all addicted to sin. So it doesn't matter what your particular inclination or sin is, but the good thing about a chemical addiction is that you you kind of can't pretend. It's not, it's not like you can, you, know, you can be lukewarm about it. Eventually, it's going to be so devastating that you're forced to change. Whereas other sins, you can live in them your whole life. And so what's worse? I think anything that forces you to, to stop and consider your life, your spiritual choices is of benefit to you. And I've said before that, you know, early on in my walk, you know, I would say to God, you know, I I know, you know, you didn't cause any of my problems, Lord. I know, you know, I know I don't blame you for my choices kind of a thing, but why couldn't you have just kind of made everything fall apart sooner? You know, why was it a 10-year, 15-year process instead of just a two-year process that caused everybody else pain? And I remember in prayer one time and, and it, you know, sometimes you're praying and God speaks to you so, so deeply in your spirit and you know it's him and you're just, you just completely wiped out. And I remember asking him that, Lord, I don't, you know, I don't understand. And he said just simply, because that's what it took. Because that's what it took. Because that's, that's right. I needed to get you to that place of utter dependence on me where you were at the end of yourself, where, you know, every plan B was gone. Everybody has a plan B. You know, I talk to people all the time. Well, I'm, you know, I know I should do this, but, you know, that's my plan B. Everybody has a backup. But the fact of the matter is that when I finally got to the place where I was, I was so utterly broken, I, I, I had, there was not pretending I had anything of value to offer. It's like, here I am, Lord, worth nothing at all, but if, if you want me, you can have me. But the thing is, we all have to get to that place. Every single one of us has to get to that place. We say, Lord, I, you know, <laughs> everything I think and feel, you know, my, my default positions are, are sinful, are selfish. And so, Lord, for the first time in my life, I want to confess my dependence on you. I want to confess my need for you, Lord. I give up. I surrender. And then watch. I, it's a scary thing. I understand it's a scary thing. But it's got to be the first step. Our churches are filled with people who've never really given their lives to Jesus. You know, we say the right things. We know the right things. We, we know the language. We know the quotes. We go to the events. But we've never given our lives to Jesus. And it doesn't mean you do that once and you're done. It means that's, that's the pattern. Surrender and repentance and obedience. And then surrender and, and uh, repentance and obedience. We do not simply humble ourselves to get in heaven or to get in church and then become self-sufficient. That's what Paul says in Galatians. You foolish Galatians, have what was begun in the spirit, you're now perfecting in the flesh. What you understand initially was an exchange, a spiritual exchange between you and your heavenly father. Do you now think it's about what you can do on your own strength? You foolish Galatians, we are to live our lives in total dependence on God to supply our needs. And we need to look at our own humility, the depth of our faith, our prayer life. These things should lead us to obedience. And then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Jesus offers blessing to those who first mourn over their own brokenness. The words Jesus used here for mourning for the dead is also lamentation. It's a serious word. It indicates a deep feeling of sorrow. Mourning in the Psalms was often associated with grieving over personal or national sin, over injustice, over a general lack of respect for God's law. And so in this context, the corresponding parallel on the Beatitudes explains it perfectly. The mourners are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness... They hunger and thirst for the coming reign of God, for the kingdom, and that will satisfy and comfort and fill them. You know, I've said before that we pray for revival and we always say, you know, we need revival. The country needs revival, you know, the the state needs revival. And we whenever we say revival, we look everywhere else. Like, revival needs my neighbor needs to change, and my spouse needs to change, and my kids need to change. You know what revival means? I need to change. Our revival, our mourning should stop for our own sin. And it should also, yes, it should break our heart. But when people are far from God, behave as people who are far from God, that should surprise no one at all. What should surprise us, what should, we should mourn for, what we should consider as when people who claim to be close to God, namely ourselves, don't mourn, don't grieve over their own sin. Jesus is inviting us into an honest assessment of our heart and condition. This isn't light stuff. You can't fluff over this. You can't say, well, yeah, the Beatitudes are nice, but let's move to... No, Jesus is is starting his greatest teaching, and he's saying, look, I'm going to give you these foundational promises, these ways to be blessed in a spiritual way, and we gloss over them. We gloss over them. From these spiritual assessments, desperation should arise in our own hearts for this to be extreme in our pursuit of God. You know, when I went after the things of the world, I did whatever it took. I wasn't I wasn't making excuses. I was results. I was gonna get whatever I wanted to get. And spiritually I was so lazy, I'm so lazy. You know, like one little thing comes up and well, I can't do that, you know, and, and we don't even see that as a spiritual as the enemy. You know, we don't even see that. And we said last week, it's, you know, our old habits, it's part of it. The world and the culture is part of it. And then the enemy. And we don't even see that. We'll, we'll go after our worldly pursuits with extreme, with extreme, you know, extremely, whatever we need to do. And yet in our pursuit of God, we're not that extreme. We're not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but our lives should be marked by the pursuit of Jesus. Each of us should be pursuing Him. Don't give your life to something that won't last. And another thing about mourning, the Bible says there's value to death, there's value to mourning, there's value to considering, is the feeling and expression of grief causes certain inhibitions to be removed. You know, when you're mourning, there's a a transparency, there's a reality. It's not superficial. It's probably in that sense the most Honest of human emotions, because nothing else matters. You don't you don't worry about what others think of you because your pain is, it overshadows the reality of the situation. I remember that when my dad was dying and I was in I was in Teen Challenge. I remember that that for that time when you know I just you know I prayed about him and his situation. I thought about him and and just that whole scenario. I remember all the little stupid stuff that I had occupied my thoughts, that had bothered me, all that kind of fell away. It just kind of gives you a perspective that, wait a minute, is this, is this even really worth me considering and thinking about in my brain? Is this, is this worth it taking up space? So much of the stuff we fill with our, with our minds with is garbage. I, I read somewhere that 80% of the stuff we worry about never comes to pass. 80% of the, of the things we worry about never even happen. So the this, this sense of mourning, the sense of, of identifying with your feelings in that deep way where God meets you, where His presence is there, where inhibitions are removed, where you are, you are in an honest place of assessment, there's value to that. It gives you a, a unique focus. When we enter into mourning, we will desire breakthrough. We will not be inhibited by what others think of us. Nor will we, we be willing to go on with business as usual. I love that sentence. We're going to desire breakthrough. You know, with, with so many other things in our lives, we're, we're so flippant. Like, Lord, could you show up here? But if you don't, that's fine because, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm going to do my own thing anyway. I mean, if you show up and we can visit for a while, that'll be cool. I'll probably tell you to leave after that and then next time something comes. But morning, what do you do? You're desperate. Lord Jesus, you have to be with me. I can't do this without you. Lord Jesus, show your face. I'm not going anywhere until I feel your presence, until I know you're with me. We should be like that all the time. All the time that should be the posture of our hearts. But, but the very things we avoid, and rightfully so, things that are incredibly discomfort, uh, uncomfortable, that cause great discomfort, they're there for a reason. P- you know, parents and spouses, people ask me all the time, there's, there's some situation or some scenario that's causing pain or that's causing problems or that's causing an issue. And in the life of their loved one, and they'll say, let's pray that God removes that obstacle. And I'll, I, I'm, it's the same thing. I've probably said it to some of you here. And I'll always be like, yeah, I'm not going to do that, just so you know. That's not what I'm going to pray for. I'm not going to pray that God removes any obstacle that he may have put there to develop a deeper spirituality. I'm going to pray that God's will be done in the situation. I'm going to pray that his presence is felt, but I am not going to pray that he removes obstacles. Because I think some of us need to be made a little bit uncomfortable to pursue the things of God. Five more minutes. While the first posture of our heart should be mourning over our own heart, Jesus also invites us into his heart for creation. You know, we should mourn over the condition of creation, of the condition of lost men. That breaks God's heart. And we shouldn't look at people as enemies. We label them and then, and then we can dehumanize them and we can put them over there. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to, to be prayerful. We're called to be ambassadors. We're called to mourn. God mourns for the lost. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. It would have been so easy in my life for someone to be like, yeah, I mean, just pick a label. You could have called me a whole bunch of stuff. But to say, well, yeah, he's he's beyond the reach of God. So easy. Maybe people have told you that. But our heart should break for lost men, women. Our heart should break for people that are far from God. We shouldn't spend our time fighting and criticizing for those people who Jesus died for. Jesus invites us into the morning that is in his own heart. And his own zeal to see it restored. God desires those who will share his heart and his burden. If you're a Christian, the calling of your life should be to see people to come to Jesus. That is why you are here. That's why when you put your trust and faith in Jesus, he doesn't just take you with him. Because you get to be part of his plan. Romans 8, all of creation, along with the Holy Spirit, is in groaning and mourning for God's restoration. When we fail to mourn over the current condition of things, it indicates we're living under the delusion that things are okay. When the reality is things are not okay. Until Jesus returns and restores all things. And that should provoke us to mourn with a desire for His return. Genesis 6, 5 and 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Those who mourn out of their own lack and over the condition of creation will receive comfort from Jesus, now and in the age to come. There is a unique opportunity in this age to share the grief that is in God's heart that will enable us to enjoy the joy in His heart at the restoration of all things. I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come up now. And next week we're going to talk about blessed are the meek. And the best, the best definition I've ever heard of the word meek because we, we hear meekness and we, we align it with weakness But the best definition I've ever heard of meekness was restrained strength. Meekness is not weakness. It's in fact the opposite. It's restrained strength. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So meekness and humility have high value to Jesus. Two things we don't strive to be very often. In fact, in people if we look at people in their lives, you know, I don't even think sometimes we think meekness and humility are attractive. I think we think that those those characteristics are maybe liabilities. Or those people are weak or they're just, you know, we value the type A, the aggression. And Jesus is inviting us here into an honest spiritual self-assessment. To recognize the poverty in spirit, the humility the dependence on Him, the desire to be meek, to choose meekness, and so in the in the coming weeks we'll we'll unwrap that. But let me just pray as we stand, and I just want to pray as as the worship team is going to begin. Lord, despite the heat and the technical difficulties and all the obstacles, Father. It's your spirit that changes us, God. You're here. It's your word that rings true. And let everything else be forgotten, but let your word and your spirit, your truth remain. So, Father, we come here to be changed by you. We come here to take an honest look at ourselves. And so, Father, there's a reason that we, that we only got into a, a couple of these beatitudes, God, because we have some work to do in our hearts. You're not inviting us to just to be external Christians, to say the right things and to, you know, you're inviting us to a deeper heart level Christianity, to an inner sense of your presence and peace in our lives. Lord, now more than ever, the world needs to see followers of Jesus who actually follow Jesus Create in us that desire, God, that we may be extreme in our pursuit of you for no other reason than you are the hope of the world. You're our hope, and you're the hope of those who don't know you, God. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.